Well, this morning's passage comes from the epistle, Jude's epistle from Jude, uh, verses 3 through 7. The passage is printed in the bulletin. You could follow in your own Bibles as well. Uh, While you're finding that, if you're able, if you'd please stand for the reading of God's Word. And let me remind you, there is a special needs seating area in the hallway. The sermon and service is being live streamed in the room behind me if you need to get away and separate yourself for a bit or if you need more room. And uh, there is children's church in the back room, nursery in the front. The Word of God from Jude, this epistle, verses 3 through 7. Would you follow along as I read aloud? Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, and to the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is the Word of God. Would you please be seated and would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, This morning we ask that you would be with us as we look together at your word. Would you work by your spirit to sanctify us? Would you come and be among us your people that we would glorify you? Would you grow our faith in you? And would you, O Lord our God, show us our great need for you? That we would be convinced of our own unrighteousness that we would be convicted of the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that as you move us to faith in Him, that we would honor and glorify you with all of our life. We thank you and we praise you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning as we look at Jude 3 through 7, I want to remind you, last week I mentioned there's a word in this letter that this whole letter kind of orbits around. It revolves around the Word. The Word can be found in verse 3, and I'll write it here this morning. It is the word contend. The word contend. There Jude says to the Christians to whom he writes, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Okay? And last week I said this whole letter is really just simply an exposition an explanation of what Jude means in this one phrase, contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. Now, that's the English. The Greek word looks like this. It is ep, 
agonizomai, ek agonizomai, and I explained that to you last week. This is a compound word, ep, it means on, agonizomai means to struggle, okay, to struggle. It's important we understand what Jude is saying because this is the nature, not only of this entire letter, it is the nature of the passage we read this morning Jude is calling Christians to struggle over or to struggle on, to strive over the content that he's about to share, okay? And so the call for Christians in this letter is some sort of fighting, contending, wrestling with. As a matter of fact, I'll show you in a second where that comes out of the entirety of Scripture, this exhortation to wrestle over the things that Jude is now communicating to us. You probably noticed how Jude began this verse, verse 3, by saying, I desire to write to you a letter about our common salvation. And what he means by that is, I, I desire to write a letter like Paul writes to the Romans, a beautiful letter about our salvation from beginning to end, but instead, I felt it necessary to write to you about this, okay? There was an urgency in Jude's writing. As a matter of fact, if you read Jude's letter in the original language, you'll see that there's a little bit of a rushed nature to it. As if he had to get out this letter, it was necessary that he got it to the Christians that he was writing to in an urgent and fast fashion. And so Jude writes to them this letter, urging them to contend. Now, listen, this same word is, uh, it is used in a variety of other places in the New Testament. Let me share with you a few Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all my energy. The word struggling is the same word. 1 Timothy 4, To this end, that is eternal life, we are to toil and to strive. The word strive is the same Greek word. 1 Timothy 6, Fight the good fight. The word fight is the same word. And Ephesians chapter 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities of darkness, okay? The word wrestle is the same word that Paul uses there. So you hear the language that Jude uses. Striving, struggling, wrestling, contending. And so Jude this morning will exhort the Christians that he writes to to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now this morning, I've provided you this insert in your bulletin. You probably saw it already, and you probably thought it was strange that there was a picture there. Let me explain. About a week and a half ago, I was reading an article. It was an NPR article. It was about the war in Ukraine, and it had this picture attached to it. It's an AP photograph. I'm not sure when exactly they pulled it, but it's from a northern city in Ukraine, and you can see there a man who looks fairly despondent. Now, when I looked at the picture, it struck me as fairly interesting and helpful this morning for two reasons. There's a stark contrast in the picture. In the background, you'll notice that it's obvious that there's a war going on, okay? There are trees that have been knocked over, windows that have been blown out of that building, and there's rubble all over the background. But the foreground seems to be something very different. There, where there used to be a playground, there's only a swing set that remains. And on the swing set is one man. And he's staring off in the distance as if he's unaware of the things that are happening behind him. Okay? As I said, I think this man is likely despondent. 
feeling as if there's no hope, kind of staring off in the distance. But it reminded me the reason for which Jude writes this letter. You see, Jude writes this letter because he will say, there is a battle that is raging. There is a battle that is currently going on, and the call of the Christian church is to not be sitting, staring off in the distance as if nothing is happening, okay? As if everything is normal here. There's nothing to see. The call for Jude to the Christian church is to engage in or to enter into the conflict for the sake of the gospel. And it's something we'll be reminded about as we look at this particular passage here this morning. Now, as we consider this text, three answers, uh, four questions actually that I'd like to answer this morning. They're very brief. First of all, as we look at Jude 3 through 7, the first question is what? Okay? What are we to contend for? Did you notice it in verse 3? What are we to contend for? Jude says we're to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now let me tell you this morning as we consider that phrase, Jude is not exhorting us to contend for something that is personal or subjective, but often we read it like that. We read Jude saying, contend for your faith, but that's not what he's saying. There are passages in Scripture that exhort us to contend for our own faith, our own dependence upon Christ, our own personal faith, but that's not what Jude says here. He says, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The Bible has a variety of titles to describe what Jude describes here. Sometimes it is called sound doctrine. Sometimes it is called the gospel, the truth, the apostles' teaching, okay, Uh, uh, There's a variety of phrases, but it all means the same thing, and it it is the narrative of events that happened during the lifetime of these men concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? It is the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. It is now what has been entrusted to us that if we have faith in Him, we have eternal life and salvation. We are redeemed by God. It is that narrative of events to which Jude is referring to when he says, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You can actually hear it in the original language. The Greek reads like this. The Greek says, contend for the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. That's how it reads, okay? That is that whole narrative of events concerning the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jude exhorts us to contend for. Now, you think about it, that makes sense. Because the life of Jesus is one overwhelming life and message of exhorting his followers to peace. He's always exhorting peace with your brothers, peace with your enemies, love for those who hate you. We would be right in assuming that if the Lord Jesus is exhorting us to fight, to contend, that it would be for something very serious, okay? And it is. It is the message of the gospel, that Jude exhorts his hearers to contend for. Now, that's the what. Another question is the who. Who does Jude exhort to do the fighting? See, I I would suggest that as Christians, we often think of this battle as a battle that is one to be done by the pastors and the elders of the church, right? Okay, good sound theology, the teaching that has been handed down to us, the truth of the gospel, we think of this as primarily the professional battle of teachers, elders, pastors, deacons, okay? And that's partly true, 
right? Pastors, elders, they meet together as sessions and as general assemblies and as presbyteries, and they wrestle over the truth of the gospel and the things that might adulterate it or affect it or change it, okay? They wrestle over those things. But let me tell you something this morning. Jude doesn't write his letter to pastors and elders. He doesn't address his introduction to those who are the teaching elders and ruling elders and deacons of the church that he writes to. Who does he address his letter to? Do you remember from last week? Those who are called, beloved in God, and kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means all of you. That's the church. It's the people of God. The war that Jude describes is not a war or a battle of professionals, of hired warriors, okay? It's not the battle that he describes. It's a battle that is an upswelling, a groundswelling, an, an uprising from within the church, that the people of God, from the oldest to the youngest, are called to this church militant and victorious, okay? To contending for the faith once for all delivered. You know what that means? That means that we're all called to this. I was thinking about the implications for a church like ours, and I was thinking about how two months ago, maybe a month and a half ago, we received a bunch of new members up here, you'll probably remember, and a subset of those new members was a group of children who were non-communing members. They, their parents had trusted in the Lord Jesus, had become members, and these children had grown up in the church, and now they were professing their own faith, and some of them were 10 and 12 years old, okay? They were here joining the church. The reality of Jude's letter is even you, children, 10 years old, 12 years old, however young you are, you are exhorted by Jude in this epistle to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is your battle. This is, this is the fighting that you're called to, the wrestling that you're being exhorted to. And so this is for us, the church. The exhortation that Jude offers is for you and I. Now, why? Why does Jude exhort these Christians to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Well, you can see it there. It's in verse 4. Verse 4 reads like this. It says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. You, you see what Jude is now exhorting them to. He's saying, listen, uh, you're called to contend for the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. You, all the church, are called to do this. Why? Because there are those who have crept in unnoticed into the church. Jude's exhortation is not that there's a battle outside of the church, though there is, but his exhortation is also that there will be a fight within the church, for there are those who have crept in unnoticed. Now, the verb there for me is so interesting. The verb that's translated crept in, it's the only time it ever occurs in the New Testament. You'll never again see it because it's not a theological word. It's not even a practical conversational word. It's actually a very technical word. It's maybe more of a zoological word. It's a, there's the, the alarm, time to be done. It's a zoological word, crept in. It's the word that describes the motion of a snake, the movement of a worm, okay? Very technical. And you can hear what Jude is saying to the church. He's saying, listen, these, these men, they've crept in. They've, 
they've slithered, they've wriggled, they've, they've gone under the cover, uh, maybe in darkness, that's the way I envision it at least. They, they, have, they have inched their way into the church and they have done so unnoticed. And you know what it means that they've done so unnoticed? It means that they are like you and I. They will speak about Jesus, okay? They have been there praying with us. They've been active in the mercy ministry of the church. They have sung together with us. They, for all intents and purposes, from the outside, have looked like one of us. They've done so unnoticed. But Jude says that they have perverted the grace of God by their sensuality, okay? Here he's describing these individuals who have crept into the church and they have perverted God's grace and they have begun to lead the people of God astray, away from the true gospel, from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, in a second, we'll talk about them, but do you notice what Jude says will be their outcome? He does not mince words here, does he? He doesn't beat around the bush. There's no lack of clarity concerning the outcome of these people. He says that they are the ones who were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people. And if you connect the dots and you get down to verse 5 through 7, you'll read there about three Old Testament accounts. That is, there are people who are in Israel who are unfaithful and God destroyed them. There are the angels who fell with Satan and God has locked them away and he's preparing them for a day of judgment and destruction. And there is Sodom and Gomorrah on which God rained fire from heaven and destroyed the city. All three accounts are directly connected to the people who have infiltrated the church unnoticed and are now leading the people of God astray. What is Jude saying? Their outcome is sure. Okay? Their end will be judgment and destruction. All right? And so as these who have crept into the church, Jude is not so much concerned for them, he's concerned for their impact on the church, okay? The effect of leading astray those who once believed, as Jude says. Now, that's the who, the why, and the what, but let me end with this. For what purpose? This this is where I want to just pause and spend a second here. And really hope that this sticks with you as you go. What's the purpose that Jude exhorts the church to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints? You see, we get the who, the what, the why, but really, what's the, what's the reason? What's the purpose? Well, let me, let me begin by, again, connecting you back to that phrase. I think there's some implications from the phrase, once for all delivered to the saints. So let me talk about that for a second. Once for all, first of all, once for all is a phrase, it's one Greek word, and what it really means is that it has never been done before, and it will never be done again. It's once and done, okay? It's a once and done event. And when Jude describes the gospel like that, what he means is, this has never happened before, and it it won't be changed. It won't be adjusted. It won't be abbreviated. There's no version 2.0. We don't need to update the gospel. It is once for all accomplished in Jesus Christ, and that is it, okay? It has been delivered to us. And he says, delivered to the saints, once for all. That is not delivered to a certain people or a certain people group, not delivered for a certain time, not delivered to a certain nation or kingdom, but once for all happened and delivered to the saints for all time. Now, you know, the beauty of that is 
that is the gospel, and it is, and it forevermore shall be. And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? But you know, one of the dangers of that is very simple. What happens if the message is lost? What happens if the message is lost? Angels aren't coming from heaven and declaring the gospel again. It has been declared, and it has been given to us in the word of God. What happens if it's lost? And I I know you're sitting here saying, God will not let his message be lost, and he will not. Not ultimately, not permanently. His word doesn't return void, and it does not. Okay? Those things are true, and, and yet we know that God, when the saints don't contend for the faith once for all delivered, that God does allow the church to go through seasons, sometimes very long seasons, where the faith once delivered to the saints is lost, generally speaking. You know how I know this? I know this because it's historically true. It has happened in the course of history. Let me give you one example, the Reformation, okay? When we think of the Reformation, we think of the heroes of the Reformation and the theological truths that come out of the Reformation and the the movements and the political things that were going on, but, you know, we don't often give thought to the people who suffered prior to the Reformation. We don't often think about that. Here's what I want you to think about, okay? The year 1080. 1080, Pope Gregory VII, okay? In 1080, he declared to the church that it was not profitable for regular people to read their Bibles. It only led to error, lack of judgment, and conflicting points of view. So he highly encouraged the church not to read their Bibles in their homes, A hundred years later, in 1199, Pope Innocent III made it the rule of law in the Roman Catholic Church that the Bible could not be read in the home. It was not allowed to be read in private, and the only listening or reading of the Bible had to happen in the church under the authority of the priest, okay? You know what that resulted in from the year 1000 or 1100 until the early Reformation? It was 300 years of people who could not read the Bible. And the only message of the faith once for all delivered to the saints was that which was given to them from their priest once a week. And whether it was a good priest or a bad priest, a good version of the message or a bad version of the message, that was all they had for hundreds of years. Yes, God does not let the message of the gospel be lost, but for times, sometimes for very long times, it is lost for great groups of people. Large groups of people. Martin Luther had a saying during the Reformation, of of his many sayings, uh, and it was kind of one of those that caught on with some of the reformers. He, He said, peace, if possible, truth at all costs. Okay, Peace, if possible, truth at all costs. And and. Sometimes we look at them and say, man, that's, that's pretty severe, but it was good. And it was good because Luther and the Reformers could look at the people and they could say, well, this is the result of the loss of truth. Around us are people suffering for a lack of knowledge, for they have no revelation of the Lord God. The faith once for all delivered to the saints had been lost. And so Luther and the Reformers said, truth is necessary. Peace, if possible, truth. At all costs. You know, as Jude writes his letter to Christians, I think he's exhorting a group of Christians who might not be as concerned for the truth of the gospel. And so he is lighting a fire underneath them, exhorting them and encouraging them to contend for the faith. 
You know the tragic thing, I think, in the church today? I think, by and large, the rallying cry of the church today is truth, if possible, peace at all costs. Truth, if possible, peace at all costs. I think the picture I showed you at the beginning, I think that's why that is largely true of the church today. The battle is raging on. Things are being destroyed. Trees are being knocked over in a very spiritual sense. And the church today sits content, looking off into the distance as if all is well here. There's nothing to contend for. That's a mindset that says, truth if possible, peace at all costs. The exhortation today is for the church to fight, to fight the good faith. Uh, fight the good fight, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And within the church today, there is a variety of ways that the, the church is under attack from within. We know this. There's heretical teaching. There's a variety of heretical teachings. There's the, there's the health and wealth version. There's the versions that focus on the law to the detriment of grace and that focus on grace to the detriment of the law, Okay. There are versions that are cultic versions that appear to be Christian and they sell themselves as Christian, but they are not. There are the versions that make peace and love the ultimate doctrine, okay? There are a variety of versions that we could talk about, but I think maybe the most fitting and helpful example would be if we let the text lead us on this. See what Jude said was happening to the church that he writes to? He says there were ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And by so doing, they deny our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. You know what that means? Perverting the gospel of grace into sensuality. Perverting is a word in the Greek that means to pollute. It means to morph or change in a negative sense. If you want to get a picture in your mind, it's, what's hap- it's what happens to a healthy cell when it becomes cancerous. It changes for the bad. Okay, it morphs. That's what he's saying here. They, they, they morph. They change. They pervert. They pollute the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And how do they do so? Through sensuality. Okay, through their sensuality. The lexicon uh, for this word, the Greek lexicon, has this to say, and I think it's helpful. It says, a shocking public indecency that rejects moral restraint and embraces carnal lust, okay? The word is as it sounds. It's a word that relates to perversion, often having to do with sexuality. It's a word that relates to lust, licentiousness, okay? There's a variety of biblical words to describe this, but Jude is writing of people who had infiltrated the church. They had taken sinful lifestyles, and they had said, this is good, And we can do this because of the grace of God. And we can have our flesh, and we can have the things we desire in the flesh, and we do these because it is good according to God's grace. Now, that might strike a little too close to home, right? Because aren't these the very things that the church is wrestling over today? Isn't this the very thing that has crept into the American church? Whether you talk about mainline denominations or smaller denominations, churches in Virginia or churches in metropolitan New York City, isn't this the reality that the grace of God has been perverted in the name of sensuality? 
And you see how this relates then, because Jude says they deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And I tell you the truth, they weren't standing in the church saying, I deny Jesus, because that would not be unnoticeable by their actions, perverting the grace of God through sensuality, they deny the lordship of Jesus. That means that they are saying, I will have Jesus, but I will have my life also. And I will have my desires and my lifestyles and the things of the former self. I take both, and by taking both, you don't take Jesus at all. You deny his lordship. You deny his authority. And you pervert the gospel of grace. You know, I found it interesting, Ligonier, they did a, a study, a survey in 2020, and they surveyed self-identifying evangelical Christians, and they found a, a number of interesting takeaways, but one of the things they found was uh, more than 20%, 22% to be exact, 22% of self-identifying evangelical Christians say that gender is a choice, okay? Gender's a choice. 22%. The Washington Post did a survey of uh, Christian college students, and they found that more than 80% of Christian college students said that sexuality outside of marriage was good in certain circumstances, okay? 80% of self-identifying Christians in college. You see that? That's the movement of the church, okay? That's the norm. That's what's being proclaimed, is that the sensuality of the world is acceptable and good under the guise of God's grace. And so for this, Jude exhorts the church to contend and to fight because ultimately it results in the loss of the faith once delivered to the saints. That, that same survey, the Ligonier survey, said that 30%, again, of self-identifying evangelicals did not believe that Jesus was necessarily God, okay? Self-identifying evangelicals. One is directly connected to the other. Once we compromise the gospel of grace, we have no need for salvation for what are we being saved from? And so one thing leads to another before too long, the gospel's lost. Sound doctrine is gone. The teaching of the apostles has disappeared. And we're left with nothing. I think Jude's exhortation to the church today is very simply not so much for us, but it's for future generations. I really do. I really think Jude's exhortation is to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints that those who will come after us will have the gospel. They will have sound doctrine and good teaching. And they won't be lost in an ocean of whatever the world is teaching, but they will be fixed on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jude's letter is to the church, and it is simply this. It is to rouse us, to awake us, to urgently call us. In our day, when it is much more acceptable to sit on the swing and act as if all is well, he rouses us to fight, for there's something worth fighting for. There's the glory of God, the honor of his son Jesus, the purity of the gospel and our doctrine, but history proves time and time again that the battle we fight is the battle for our children and for their children and for those who will come after us. It's a battle that will determine whether they have the faith once delivered, whether they receive the real good news or simply some watered-down counterfeit version 
that doesn't call them out of sin. It doesn't offer them transformation. It doesn't give them any redemption or renewal or grace or goodness or mercy or truth. So Jude's exhortation is very simple. It is to fight the good fight, to strive towards our common salvation, to wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and the kingdom of darkness, and to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints so that future generations might hear, might know, and might hold secure to the beautiful good news that we have heard and we now proclaim the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. And our Lord and our God, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you did not leave us to our own devices in our own sin but that you have made a way for us who were once your enemies, who were once children of darkness in our rebellion, you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We know our Lord and our God that in the course of history, it often becomes the case that that message is under attack, that it is at risk of being subverted, It is at risk of being changed, adulterated, and perverted. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would make us faithful where and when necessary to stand up and to contend for the faith once for all delivered to us. That we would proclaim the good news. That we would not give in to the temptation to change it to adjust it, to make it easier, more palatable, but that we would faithfully proclaim all that has been handed down to us from the Lord to the apostles, now to the church. Would you make us bold and courageous, merciful and loving, compassionate and truthful? And would you, O Lord, our God, would you protect this message, the truth of the gospel, for our children and for our children's children. Would you work in our communities and our neighborhoods? Would you work a revival? Would you change hearts? Would you call lost sinners unto you? And in the process, would you glorify yourself? For you deserve our worship. We thank you and we praise you this morning. It's in your name we ask all of these things. Amen.